0: You're listening to WJMSradio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up show starts right now.
1: And welcome, everybody. Welcome to Fired Up, right here on WJMSradio.com, where radio is reimagined. How's everybody doing? Hope you had a spooktastic Halloween, uh, as this show is airing on the 1st of November. Uh, All the little ghosts and goblins, uh, hopefully they had a safe trick-or-treating out there. And uh, we're here looking at some of the other scary things going on, especially when we're talking about politics, which is what we do here on Fired Up. So let's get right into it, okay? Let's start off as we always do with our rundown of where we stand with the COVID virus here in the United States. We're currently standing at 45.9 million cases have been reported, 745,700 plus people have uh, succumbed to the disease, and we have 418,200,000 plus vaccination doses have been administered, which uh, equals out to 57.9 of the population being fully vaccinated and 67% having received at least one dose. In COVID news that's uh, come along the pipe this week, uh, we've learned that the, that the FDA has given approval to uh, vaccine doses for children ages 5 to 12, so that's a great thing for uh, those parents looking to get their children back into physical school. And uh, there are expected to be about 28 million uh, children that need to be vac- vaccinated, and hopefully that occurs and we get that going and our young ones can get back into school in face-to-face school that is and uh, that will help them with their learning and their socialization and also not to say the least we'll get them out of mom and dad's hair so that mom and dad can go back to doing normal mom and dad things when the kids are in school so we look forward to seeing um, That vaccine move forward. The one remaining step is that the Centers for Disease Control or the CDC will need to issue uh, final authorization for administration of the vaccine. That's expected to occur uh, tomorrow when the CDC has its advisory panel meeting. So we should be seeing a rollout of vaccine uh, to children ages 5 to 12 uh, within roughly about a week or so. The government has already said they have staged up some 15 million doses already and uh, with more to come. So good news. Uh, We continue to see reductions in the hospitalization rate uh, due to COVID. Although the overwhelming majority of those that are being hospitalized still remain the unvaccinated and people who uh, choose not to follow the safety mandates that have been coming from the medical and scientific community for about the last two years now. And uh, we'll continue to hope that people will see the light and realize that the best protection method you can get is to be vaccinated and is to follow the guidelines uh, that the scientific and medical community have issued out for us. So uh, that's you know a call to action, a standing call, as we've been talking about now for uh, literally two years. And, you know, let's go out, let's get our vaccinations, folks. It's the best way to keep yourselves, your family, your community, and uh, get our country uh, to turn the corner on this pandemic once and for all. All right. So with that being said, we're going to uh, move into our show, and I want to spend a good portion of the show today talking about the infrastructure bills, uh, both of them. Uh, this past week, President Biden met with the Democratic coalition, and uh, the, the outtake from that meeting was that a framework for the uh, scaled back second portion of the infrastructure plan uh, has been arrived at. Uh, the final details are being written into the bills and hopefully these will go to uh, the president's desk for signature in short order. Uh, I'm going to talk about you know that whole process and what we've experienced with it as well. but I wanted to start with just kind of a review of you know what the key takeaways, are from the two uh... bills that have been uh... now framed out and it, the the first bill has been approved in the senate and is awaiting approval in the house and uh... what seems to be holding that in place is that the progressive caucus of the democratic party uh... wants to see both of these bills ready to go to the white house uh... at the same time and you know, we, we've talked about on this show that you know, in, in some circles that is seen as a, a strategic, um, how should I say, uh, a, a strategic faux pas on the part of the administration uh, in that they have the votes in both the Senate and the House to have passed the first uh, infrastructure bill through reconciliation and you know, allowed the Progressive Caucus and some uh, Senators who had some issues with the second bill to hold up that process. Um, so let, let's go through the bills and then we'll, we'll talk about the strategy and tactics that we have seen play out uh, with these two bills. So as we said, um, initially, uh, the, the first infrastructure bill, which was a hard infrastructure bill, Uh, came through at $1.2 trillion, um, and it was passed uh, in the Senate uh, with a bipartisan vote uh, and went on to the House, where it has been held up, as I said, by progressives who have insisted that the $3.5 trillion Build Back Better agenda, uh, otherwise known as the Social Infrastructure Bill, Uh, be passed as well and both bills go to the president's desk simultaneously Um, so on october 28th uh, president biden came out from his meeting with the democrats and announced a framework for the second bill in the series which was substantially scaled back and now sits at about 1.85 trillion dollars down from the three and a half that uh, originally had been asked for. So, you know, there were some things which had uh, been requested that have been pulled back and we're going to look at those in a moment. So, one thing to keep in mind is that, you know, this second plan is going to require the support of all 50 Democratic Senators uh, as there are no Republicans expected to support the legislation. Uh, The framework includes $1.75 trillion of social infrastructure funding and additional $100 billion in immigration spending contingent upon affirmative ruling by the Senate parliamentarian. That would bring the total up to the aforementioned $1.85 trillion. So when you add that to the 1.2 bipartisan infrastructure legislation, uh, the resulting spending is just over $3 trillion uh, supporting President Biden's agenda. And, of course, all this assumes that the Democrats will agree on the scaled-down version, but at least the early indications are that uh, all Democrats are on board. Hopefully, they can lock that all in and get it you know, written up And, you know, get it forwarded to the president for his signature. So let's break these down. All right. The one point two trillion dollar bipartisan bill, the first one that has been uh, that was passed. uh, It includes one hundred and ten billion dollars for roads and bridges, uh, which, you know, in in addition to construction repair, the funding also helps pay for transportation research at universities funding for Puerto Rico's highways, and congestion relief in American cities. So all of you who are stuck in daily commuter traffic will appreciate that one. $66 billion are going to the railroads. And this funding includes upgrades and maintenance of America's passenger rail system and freight rail safety. But it does not include anything on progress for high-speed rail uh, in the United States. Um, the freight rail safety component is much needed. Uh, over the last couple of years, uh, we have seen some very severe, um, you know, accidents with regard to not only freight trains but also passenger rails. There was one here, you know, in Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, not too long ago, um, that you know had several people who were killed and many people who were injured, uh, all because the braking system. On the railroad tracks and the controls on the train didn't function as they were supposed to. So hopefully this bill would address those deficiencies. Another $65 billion would go for the power grid. This bill would fund updates to power lines and cables as well as provide money to prevent hacking of the power grid. Uh, And there's also in that uh, some funding for clean energy as well. Uh, an additional $65 billion would go for broadband, including funding to expand broadband in rural areas and in low-income communities. Approximately, approximately $14 billion of the total would help reduce Internet bills for low-income citizens. Uh, and as we've just come through you know, uh, a year and a half or more of you know, schooling at home, where people didn't have reliable or high-speed access and were relegated to going to fast food restaurant parking lots and other locations just to connect to uh, capable internet so they could do their homework Uh, that will be a much needed boost for a broad swath of the country especially in rural areas and remote areas where the traditional cable network has not gotten out that far Uh, 55 billion dollars of the the bipartisan bill will go for water infrastructure, which includes $15 billion for lead pipe replacement, $10 billion for chemical cleanup, and money to provide clean drinking water to tribal communities. And as we've seen in the news over the last uh, couple of years um, with the situation in Flint, Michigan, and, and other parts of Michigan um, in Newark, New Jersey, and so forth, Uh, Lead pipe abatement is something that is desperately needed in many areas of our country. $47 billion of the bill will go for cybersecurity and climate change. Uh, The so-called Resilience Fund will protect infrastructure from cybersecurity attacks and address flooding, wildfires, coastal erosion, and droughts, along with other extreme weather events. $39 billion will go for public transit. Funding here provides for upgrades to public transit systems nationwide. Uh, The allocation also includes money to create new bus routes and help make public transit more accessible to seniors and disabled Americans. Uh, $25 billion of the bill will go to our airports. This allocation will provide funding for major upgrades and expansions at US airports. Air traffic control towers and systems would receive $5 billion of the total for upgrades. And, you know, we've we've seen stories in the news over the past 10 years about the problems with the air traffic system and how overloaded and needed uh, for upgrading it is. So this is a much needed boost for that area. $21 billion of the money will go for the environment. Uh, Money is used to clean up Superfund and brownfield sites, abandoned mines, and old oil and gas wells. $17 17 billion dollars of this will go to ports. Half of the funds in this category would go to the Army Corps of Engineers for port infrastructure. Additional funds would go to the Coast Guard, ferry terminals, and reduction of truck emissions at ports. So you know the, the infrastructure portion of this um, is something that we're seeing right now is desperately needed. There have been several stories in the news recently about the delay in the supply chain with you know hundreds of ships stuck offshore waiting to get into ports because there are not enough uh, truck drivers to move those containers from the ports and out into distribution So, so you know needed equipment supplies and materials are just standing in station outside of our our ports on both coasts 11 billion of this money would go for safety Appropriations here to address highway, pedestrian, pipeline, and other safety areas, with highway safety getting the bulk of the funding. $8 billion for western water infrastructure. And if you live out in, in the west coast or, or in the western uh, half or western third of the country, uh, this is a key, key issue for you out there as we have seen. Drought conditions get much worse over the last uh, three or four years. And, you know, places like Lake Mead and other necessary water supplies has you know, been drying up and you know, is threatened to be non-existent unless we address that. So eight billion dollars of this bill will go uh, toward that. Uh, there's seven and a half billion dollars in the bill for electric vehicle charging stations. Um, you know the, the idea here is the administration wants to build significantly more charging stations for electric vehicles across the nation. And as we've seen the growth in popularity, uh, availability, and variety of elect- electric vehicles, uh, this infrastructure is going to be much needed uh, if the that segment of the automotive market is going to continue to grow and expand and help us reduce our carbon footprint and 700 I'm sorry 7.5 billion dollars for electric school buses with an emphasis on bus fleet replacement in low income rural and tribal communities so you know the the idea here is to expand the efforts we already have on zero-emission buses out into areas where it has not yet uh, become a reality. So that's a summary of what's in the um, $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill. Now let's take a look at the second component of that, the $1.85 trillion uh, Democratic proposal. That, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the segment, uh, was in discussion with President Biden and the Democratic coalition uh, just this past week. So, what do we have in this bill? And we start with 400 billion dollars for child care and universal preschool. Uh, this plan uh, is intended to save American families more than half of their spending on child care, but providing by providing two years of free preschool for every three- and four-year-old in America and additional funding for child care. $150 billion would go to home care uh, to expand home care for seniors and the disabled. Uh, $200 billion would go for uh, expansions of the child tax credit and earned income credit. Uh, The proposal extends the child tax credit for one year and provides additional funds to extend the Earned Income Tax Credit uh, to parts of the tax code that benefit families greatly in this country. $150 billion for home care, which would expand access to high-quality home care for older Americans and people with disabilities. $550 billion for clean energy and climate. The plan proposes cutting greenhouse gas pollution by over a gigaton by 2030, reducing consumer energy costs, helping to create more clean air and water, and creating hundreds and thousands of new jobs in support of these industries. $130 billion in Affordable Care Act credits. Uh, This money is targeted to expand affordable health care coverage, reduce premiums for more than 9 million Americans, and deliver health care to uninsured people in states that are not enrolled in expanded Medicaid coverage. $35 billion would go to Medicare hearing coverage. Uh, while you know initially the proposal was for dental, vision, and hearing, uh, the only uh, element of that to make the cut was hearing, and Medicare recipients will have coverage for hearing aids and hearing tests. $150 billion of the bill will go to housing. Uh, here the plan is going to address and invest in affordable housing, including construction and rehabilitation of homes, as well as investments in rental assistance and housing vouchers. $40 billion uh, for higher ed and workforce. Uh, this portion of the legislation will increase Pell Grants and provide post-high school education opportunities including through apprenticeship programs for underserved communities. 90 billion dollars for equity and other investments. And what this means is that spending in this area will be designed to achieve equity through investments in, materi- I'm sorry, maternal health, community violence interventions, and nutrition, according to a statement from the White House. 100 billion of this money will go to immigration, Uh, This is part of the framework, but also separate, since it requires a ruling by the Senate parliamentarian. This would constitute an investment to reform the immigration system, reduce backlogs, expand legal representation, and make border processing more efficient and humane. Uh, A a portion of the bill uh, addresses the corporate alternative minimum tax. A 15 percent minimum tax on companies whose financial statements show at least one billion dollars in profit as proposed by Senators Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts and Angus King of Maine and Ron Wyden of Oregon uh, has been added uh, to the current Build back legislation to help fund it. So in this. In this pack, uh, let's take a look at some things that got left on the cutting room floor. Uh, First and foremost, uh, paid family leave. The Democratic proposal initially was for 12 weeks of guaranteed paid family and medical leave. Uh, In the process of negotiation, it was ultimately scaled back to four weeks Uh, Ultimately, though, no paid leave made it into uh, the framework in the second phase of the infrastructure package. As I said, dental and vision benefits under Medicare were cut out. Um, Medicare drug pricing, the ability of Medicare to negotiate drug prices uh, directly with pharmaceutical companies was also cut out from the final framework. And free community college. Expansion of Pell and uh, an apprenticeship, excuse me, training remains, but free community college uh, tuition for two years uh, has been taken out. Um, under the the or onto the cutting room floor also fell the billionaire's income tax. Uh, the funding plan or this funding plan, which would have taxed the unrealized gains of certain assets of around 700 of the richest taxpayers in the country and, and would help fund the legislation has been removed. So, so that is an overview of the two packages. Uh, realize that the, the bills themselves, the first uh, bill, the bipartisan bill, is uh, just shy of 3,000 pages long. And the projected length of the second bill is probably going to be an additional 2,000 pages. So once the bills are out there, uh, they'll be available to the public. You can go online to uh, the WhiteHouse.gov website or the House.gov or Senate.gov websites and see the, the uh, language of the bills uh, and, you know, curl up for a a long winter's night and read them for yourselves. Um, Emphasis there on long winter's night. Uh, It's 5,000 pages. Um, But there are are numerous summaries that have been uh, released to the public through the press and social media. Uh, I encourage you to go out and you know, Read the summaries from different sources, from various sources, so that you get a fuller picture of what the infrastructure proposals are going to contain. Um, don't just rely on single source, just like any news that, that we get. You want to get a, a wide variety of news, compare them all together, and you will find that the truth lies somewhere in the middle of that circle. So... You know, it, it, it's clear that the the ideas of the infrastructure bill have changed drastically uh, over the last, uh, you know, six or eight months. Um, clearly, there's been politics played. Um, clearly, you know, the the agendas of a few uh, House and Senate members have know, have slowed down or roadblocked much of the progress that was initially expanded into these bills however that's not the entire story um we'll we'll take a quick break here but when i come back we're going to talk about how this process worked or didn't work and you know in what in my opinion are the flaws in the strategy on both the Democratic and Republican sides uh, of this issue. So you're listening to Fired Up Radio right here on WJMSradio.com. We'll be right back after this very short break. And welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMSradio.com, where radio is reimagined. And uh, we are discussing uh, the we just finished our discussion, or at least an intro to it, of the two infrastructure bills that are now in the hands of the House and Senate for final versions heading to uh, get to the president's desk for his signature um, but I wanted to uh, sort of step out of that context for a bit and kind of talk a little bit about where we find ourselves uh, as we enter the final two months of, um, no, of 2021 here. Um, first of all, as this show is airing on the 1st of November... Uh, just a reminder that there are a host of state and local elections, which will be occurring uh, probably wherever you're listening from uh, tomorrow, November 2nd. And, you know, a reminder that uh, elections aren't just something that happens every two years with national midterms and you know, national uh, presidential elections. There are elections that occur throughout the year all over the country that are equally important. And we're gonna talk about why those elections are so important uh, as we go through in in this segment here. But uh, what I wanted to say is, you know, we, as we again uh, work toward wrapping up 2021 going into 2022 which will be a hectic election year. There's no doubt of that. Um, But, you know, as a country, we find ourselves coming to uh, kind of a crossroads, um, you know, with the activities of just the past decade with regard to race, abortion, voting, and access to wealth. Uh, We've pulled, uh, we we have seen it pull the curtain back on the formerly secret war that has been occurring on the poor and middle class in this country. And, you know, both of the two major parties uh, have culpability in this. Uh, The Democrats um, have all but, um, I I would say, abandoned their uh, concern for the political center of this country in everything except uh rhetoric um infrastructure bill notwithstanding uh for the most part uh the the two parties have fallen into this mindset of you know getting reelected and personalities and and so forth and really have moved away from you know the core of the American public, uh, that is, you know, the, the poor, the middle class, you know, and, and so forth. And, um, you know, it should be noted, Republicans have also moved away from their portion uh, or the portion of their base that has, you know, the, the low-income, poor, and middle-class populations in favor of this, quote, radical right, close, quote, Agenda uh, that seems to be uh, hell bent on empowering hate and injustice, and you know, feeding the wealth of the upper, you know, one percent or fraction of one percent in this country. Um, you know, if if this is going to be how the political game uh, is going to continue, and particularly if this this game continues. For you know, just a few months more, uh, it's highly likely, uh, and you know, many uh, pundits out there are predicting this as well, that the Democrats um, could very well lose their majorities in both the House and Senate, uh, and you know, with you know, with the Republicans, should they win the day in the midterms uh, a year from now. Uh, it is likely that um, they could uh, also retake the White House as well. Um, you know, it it will buoy their spirit to have these midterm victories uh, and will consolidate their ownership of the House and Senate. And, you know, by extension, that also means that they're, their hold on state governments uh, is also likely to expand and deepen. Uh, if if this is to be the truth, um, you know the the Democrats could face quite a few years being in the minority uh, in this country, the minority party, you know, in this country. Um, but you know, while the the Republicans uh, look to to further their, their control at the national level, we should not ignore, and, and I emphasize this, we should not ignore uh, what is happening at the state level with, retar- with regard to the Republican efforts to uh, consolidate power in areas they already hold, to deepen that hold through uh, various uh, legal and legislative means, and we'll talk a little bit about that, and, you know, b- basically to continue on what is now becoming uh, an almost 60-year uh, pursuit of their Southern strategy. So, you know, it, it, y- you need to think about it this way. The current state of, you know, Republican politics Is not something that you know popped up out of the ground uh, with the election of Donald Trump uh, you know in in the prior administration the this goes back to a a deliberate strategy that was set in place in the 1960s um, was was uh, strengthened under uh, Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon and continues to be their operating strategy at the state level, uh, as we are now seeing with the uh, the redistricting efforts going on and the levels of Republican and Democratic gerrymandering that are that's occurring in this country. We spoke last week about uh, plans in the state of Illinois, which is a Democratic state, a blue state, that look uh, a whole lot like what's been going on in Republican states in this country. So just just a reminder that, you know, the game of politics is one that both sides are playing. Um, however, as I said just a, a few seconds ago, both sides equally seem to be on a path that leads them away from the, the poor, the middle class and the working class in this country, in this country and also uh, seem to uh, move them away from the more progressive and moderate elements in their party as they work more and more to consolidate their power uh, to the extreme left and the extreme right uh, of the political spectrum. Uh, As we've talked about on this show, keep in mind that independents, those who are not aligned with either of the two major parties, outnumber the the combined numbers of the Democrat and Republican parties uh, by nearly two to one. And, you know, those independent, progressive, moderate voters, whatever you want to call them, uh, represent what could be the real political power in this country if they uh, so choose to mobilize that effort Uh, to a greater extent than they have in the past. Uh, One of the things that is most encouraging is that we see uh, some uh, element of that motivation happening, uh, both as a result of the four years of the Trump administration and the things that uh, they did to disenfranchise so many Americans, as well as... Uh, the seeming uh, uh, falling short of the Biden administration with getting, you know, their admittedly ambitious uh, agenda moving forward, uh, we see a lot more pushback coming from the progressive arms of both parties uh, against, you know, the the political mainstream uh, that's been going on in this country, and you know, then that, that isn't entirely a bad thing. However, uh, this, this uh, opposition to mainstream political agendas uh, needs to go beyond just uh, a, a protest-level uh, effort and some form of actionable uh, creation needs to occur. And, you know, as we, we've discussed in prior shows... One of the things is that even without creating a standalone third party, which is a stated objective of many of the groups that I've referenced in the past, um, that is a very long term prospect. Uh, It could likely take, uh, you know, 20 years, 25 years, 30 years for a third party to accrue enough power to you know, to, to wield uh, or to wrestle uh, control of the, the national political mechanism away from either Democrats or Republicans. Um, however, within the existing parties, these groups are represented, you know, and, and we talked about this on last week's show. Uh, so there is a mechanism whereby, you know, these groups could band together, could form a a coalition, and through the process of uh, you know the 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 House and Senate voting procedures, uh, achieve many of the objectives that the progressive and moderate uh, segments of both parties seek to to get a hold of. Now, I'm not saying you know that you know this is some Pollyanna. Uh, wave a magic wand solution. Uh, if if this process begins to go forward, it is definitely going to run into you know significant resistance uh, from both parties. Uh, perhaps more so the Republican Party than the Democratic Party, as a lot of the progressive ideas uh, are further away from the right than. Than they are further away from the left uh, as we look at political alignment, but you know it still represents a good first step toward you know balancing out the the actions of our federal government to be more reflective of what this country really looks like. Uh, it it is this country is constructed of you know people who. Generally affiliate with the Democrats uh, and have a uh, more left-leaning uh, agenda and scope, and people who affiliate with the Republicans and have a more um, right-wing and conservative approach. Uh, but the the people in the middle represent the you know overwhelming majority of Americans who, you know, don't fall into either of those categories and could, you know, ostensibly be that voice for what has been you know, renamed the, the new silent majority in this country. Uh, it, it is something that is worth having, you know, deeper and broader discussions, both at the federal elected official level as well as our state and local uh, elected official levels. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to use that as a segue into talking about, you know, state politics and local politics. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, the Republicans have been on a, sh- a 60-year strategy called the Southern Strategy uh, to consolidate power at the state and local level uh, as a pipeline for moving power into the federal level Up from the states. And, you know, we've seen this, you know, in in the last few election cycles, how, you know, former state senators and state congresspeople, uh, governors and mayors and and so forth have, you know, aspired to and achieved uh, national political office uh, by way of building on that support they have at the local level. So, you know, we need to be. Uh, always vigilant of the federal elected officials of our federal government but we can't just be monofocused at the federal level without being at least as equally focused at the state level because the the way this country is constructed ladies and gentlemen is while the federal government does have power Right. It has power over national strategies, national efforts, uh, the, the national direction of the country. The real power in governing this country is actually wielded by the states, and that's by design. The founders determined that such things, for example, as voting, which is absolutely critical to the the success of this experiment called America, uh, that that power is uh, resident at the state level. The states control their voting processes. The federal government does not dictate policy on how uh, elections are run, how candidates run for office, how votes are held, how they are counted. All of that is handled at the state level. Now, the federal government can exercise some restraints and put some guardrails in place, such as the Voting Rights Amendment of 1965 and the, um, the, the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Act bill that is currently uh, stalled in Congress Uh, as well as other legislation that has been uh, pitched and held up at the federal level, which would set some guidelines under which the states would run their elections. It wouldn't tell them how votes are to be cast, but it would make sure that the states follow a level playing field of uh, characteristics of the vote so that every American citizen uh, is able and can exercise their right to vote that is the foundational element of our democracy is that every citizen has one person one vote and that right to vote is crucial to everything we want to get done whether it's you know school and education policies and procedures Whether it is uh, state and local taxation, whether it is infrastructure in the state, whether it is how state governments are run, you know, all of these things are not handed down from the federal to the state. They are created in the states and used as the support structure for the federal government operation. And, And that's why it is important that we stay focused, you know, tightly on the federal but that we don't take our eye off of what's going on in our states. And one of the things, you know, we, we talk about in this show is we look at how those state policies are impacting the operation and the thinking at the federal level, whether it's abortion rights, whether it's voting rights, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, climate change, all of these things have their genesis at the state level and then rise up to be addressed at the federal level. And it's not the other way around, even though it may look that way. A lot of this this energy uh, is pushed upward from the states to the federal. So, you know, a- as important as it is to be focused on the national elections, you know, we're, we're about to go into the midterm election feeding frenzy over the next 14 months. Uh, It is equally important to recognize that tomorrow you have the opportunity to vote for your local school boards, for your local judges, county commissioners, mayors, uh, city council members, you know, all of these uh, these boards and committees that run your state day-to-day, all right? So keep in mind that, again, while powerful, the federal government does not have a huge impact on your day-to-day lives. Your state and local governments have much more control over how your daily life works in the state that you live in than the federal government does, all right? So, you know, think, think about that. Um, As I said, uh, tomorrow in in a lot of areas around the country um, is an election day. Please get out and and vote locally. If you need information on what's going on, you know, where you live, you can go to ballotpedia.org and you can search out. Uh, What elections are going on in your state? They have candidate backgrounds. They have referendum and and issue uh, items described so you can get educated on what you need to know uh, to go out tomorrow and vote in your state and local elections. And please do that. Um, You know, that is where the the source of the power that the federal government has. That's where it comes from so you know it it, it's an ongoing thing it's something we've talked about on this show uh frequently and we will we will continue to talk about it um related and as i mentioned about redistricting um the illinois democratic uh administration and leadership has uh, passed a redistricting uh, map uh, this past Friday that, as it says in this article I found on Politico, uh, likely secures Democrats' control of 14 of the state's 17 congressional districts. But it also uh, condemned one uh, freshman representative to you know what what's probably an uncomfortable fate in that she will have to face um, a longtime Democrat opponent uh, because of the way the new district map is drawn and this happens frequently in redistricting um, two senators or, or two Congress people who had adjacent districts under the old map when the map gets redrawn in many cases, portions of that district are merged with the other. The the shape and area that it covers are redrawn, and you end up having to have runoff elections between two uh, two Democrat or two Republican candidates who occupy the same area of real estate within their state. Um, it, it is an unfortunate uh, uh, side effect of gerrymandering that sometimes uh, is used by the, the party in power in the state to consolidate more power because essentially you can you know create a new district that encompasses one representative where prior to that you had two so in areas in particular where states lose Uh, a number of seats, you know, one or two seats in the House of Representatives in Washington because of the census. The gerrymandering process is just the way that those new seats are reapportioned uh, across the state. So it it is something to pay attention to. Also keep in mind that, as we've said on the show, that redistricting happens every 10 years the results are set in stone for 10 years until the next census. So whatever changes happen to your congressional representation, it is, it is in place for 10 years. So, you know, it, it, it is something that we as citizens need to be concerned about. Some states in the country have recognized that partisan gerrymandering regardless of the political party is a problem and have addressed it by creating nonpartisan district commissions whose job it is to draw n- new district lines based on the census guidelines every 10 years that are you know more fair more evenly distributed and better represent the population of the state as a whole rather than just looking to see how many, you know, red districts or how many blue districts we can create, you know, out of that state pie. So, you know, it it is part and parcel of, you know, one of the things we need to pay attention to. There is legislation, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, and, you know, the, there's another voting uh, bill that is stalled in Washington, D.C. that would call for partisan gerry- gerrymandering to be eliminated and replaced nationwide with nonpartisan commissions. You know, so the, the idea of partisanship plays many different levels. We have seen in recent voting legislation out of Georgia and out of Texas, um, out of uh, Louisiana, Utah, and several other states where the people who count the votes are no longer nonpartisan appointees to a commission. They would be appointed by whichever the governing power is in the state. So... You know, election votes would be counted in red states by all Republicans. Guess which way that could lean? So, something else to keep in mind. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll keep discussing this in the coming weeks, and we'll definitely be revisiting this as in the run up to the midterms uh, next November. So, just something to be aware of. Finally, um, one other thing just to sort of tease out, um, there are some big things coming with WJMS Radio. Uh, If you haven't already, please go to the WJMSradio.com website, um, mark it as a a bookmark on your system, uh, like it, and sign up to get updates, sign up for the newsletter Uh, There's going to be some really, really exciting stuff coming as we move into the new year. That's going to wrap it up for this week's show. As always, thank you so, so much for listening. I appreciate it. Please make sure you stay safe. You know, get vaccinated. Follow the medical and scientific guidelines. Make sure that you're keeping yourself and your family uh, safe uh, through the pandemic. Um, This is Steve. You're listening to Fire It Up. Each week, every Monday, here on WJMSradio.com, where radio is reimagined. Take care, everyone, and I will talk to you again in seven days. wherever you stand I'm calling every woman I'm calling every man we're the generation we can't afford to wait the future started yesterday and we're already late
0: you're listening to wjmsradio.com where radio is reimagined the fired up show starts right now
1: And welcome everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com where radio is reimagined. This is Steve. I host the show for you every week as we look at how the political machine here in the United States functions or doesn't function as the case may be. So welcome everyone. Sit back. Uh, We got a busy show to uh, go through today and I can't wait to get started. So, as always, let's kick it off with our COVID report. And we are currently showing a uh, COVID case rate of 45.4 million uh, Americans who have contracted the disease. 736,000, regrettably, have died from the disease. And there have been 410.5 million vaccine doses administered, uh, which means that 54% of the uh, people who have received the vaccines are fully vaccinated, while 66.3 have received one or more of the vaccine doses. So, we continue to make progress on that front. Uh, We continue to see a slowing in the rate of hospitalization, as well as the rate of fatality from the disease, due in large part to the vaccination and the uh, wider adoption of the safety protocols that we have been talking about on this show and and you've heard in other media sources now nearly two years so we continue to make progress and that's a good thing Uh, there's still a ways to go we still have a significant number of people in this country who are unvaccinated uh, either by choice or due to uh, some reason such as religious exemption or so forth and uh, the key word in that, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. And in fact, uh, if I could give this show a title, it's going to be uh, Choices. Uh, so let, let's kick it off with uh, Choices in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, as I mentioned, you know there are some, by, by some estimates, about 80 million people in this country who are still unvaccinated. Uh, many of those are unvaccinated by choice. And, you know, it, it is clear that in this country, we are free to make choices. And one of those choices you can make is you can choose not to be vaccinated. Um, but if you, you choose that route, just be aware, and you should be aware, that the overwhelming majority, better than 90% of the patients hospitalized with COVID-19 symptoms at present, were those who are not vaccinated. Uh, In addition, you know, there is a lot of discussion out there about mask mandates in various parts of the country and a lot of people who refuse to wear a mask uh, or refuse to be ordered to wear a mask under a mandate. Uh, And again, in this country, you are free to make those kind of choices. However, you know, you have to look at the consequence of your choices In that if you choose not to be vaccinated, if you choose, you know, never to wear a mask, even in those scenarios where it is advisable to do so, uh, such as being in large crowds or, you know, being in environments where uh, the, the risk of transmission from COVID from people who may have been infected is very high. Uh, That is your choice. However, you know, you will have to live with your consequences. We've seen the newspaper articles and we've seen the interviews on television and radio of people lying in an incubator bed with a ventilator system going who were against getting a vaccine and against wearing a mask. And regrettably, many of those people uh, succumbed to the disease and ended up regretting their choice. So, You know, the 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 advisory is, you know, while you have a right to choose what you want to do, uh, that's part of our freedoms here in this country. Be aware that your choices carry consequences. And one of the consequences of not being vaccinated and not wearing a mask ever is that you are highly likely at some point to perhaps catch covid and suffer some very, very uh, devastating consequences. Uh, we hope that doesn't happen. We encourage people on this show to please get their vaccine uh, injections and to wear a mask when it's it's necessary for you to wear a mask. You know, I should state, you know, for my own case, I have been fully vaccinated now since March, and I've had multiple COVID tests uh, over the months. Uh, I traveled to the Dominican Republic in May, and that. Uh, was during the time when they were under a level 4 advisory and, you know, was in and about in the area of DR that I, that I, was, I was at and tested negative for COVID both uh, on exit from the country and a little bit later, uh, just as a backup. Uh, I recently also had to uh, have COVID testing done uh, prior to a trip down to Georgia. And again, COVID test came back negative, uh, practiced, you know, good mask and hygiene um, protocols while I was down there and, you know, tested upon my return. And still, I remain negative for COVID at this time. So, you know, there is benefit, you know, hopefully, you know, my story is not unique in that many of us out there who uh, have received vaccines and, and have been Getting COVID tested, uh, whether it's for work or just for personal information, um, you know, can can serve as testimony as to why it's important for you know us all to get vaccinated, and us all to protect ourselves. So you know, just remember, you know, we are free to make choices in this country. The one thing that we have to take into account is that usually choices have consequences. So, you know, while I would encourage you to get vaccinated, I would encourage you to wear your mask when conditions warrant, you know, when you're going to be in a a crowded facility. I mean, there are places I go where you know, I don't have to wear a mask because I'm fully vaccinated, but I choose to wear a mask because I'm unsure of the groups of people that I'm surrounded with who is vaccinated, who is not, and the likelihood that while the vaccine protects me from the disease, uh, there are what are called breakthrough cases where people who are vaccinated uh, can, in fact, get the disease, particularly if there are other underlying um, uh, conditions. You know, and, and, in fact, this week, um, sadly, we learned of the passing of uh General Colin Powell, uh, former secretary of state, um, former uh, chief of staff of the the Pentagon. And he succumbed to complications of covid, which were exacerbated by the fact that he had a form of cancer and, you know, his age, he was eighty four. So there are things that can increase your risk for being infected with covid that you need to be aware of and take into consideration as you go forth in public. So while we extend you know, our condolences to the family of, of General Powell, we also, as with many uh, segments of his life, can look to him as an example of some things that we should be aware of and take into account. So you know, as always on this program, I encourage you all, you know, to get vaccinated, if you're able, practice your mask wearing and distancing as as best you can when situations warrant and do what you can just to to protect yourself, your family uh, and your loved ones from this disease, because it is still out there. It's still roving around the country. There are still variants uh, out there that we've talked about on this show and that you know we are now seeing um increased levels of the Lambda variant that are showing up in selected areas of the country. So we have a lot to be careful about. And, you know, we we need to make sure that we are making choices that make sense for us and make sense for the greater good of our family and our community. In other COVID-related news, uh, this week we learned that now all three of the uh, COVID vaccines that have been uh, either emergency use approved or fully approved uh, for use in this country. All three have also received approval uh, for use as a booster shot for the COVID and that the process of mixing and matching vaccines for a booster uh, has also been approved by the Food and Drug Administration. What that means is that if you had the uh, Johnson and Johnson vaccine, you could get a booster of either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines uh, and vice versa. If you had the Pfizer vaccine, you know, the Moderna vaccine can be used as a booster for you as well. Uh, The encouragement uh, is going out from uh, Washington, D.C., from the Biden administration, as well as the CDC and um, National Institutes of Health, that those in you know, the, the target categories uh, should get a booster uh, to their, their vaccine if it has been at least uh, six or eight months since you were vaccinated. Uh, they are, they are uh, suggesting and recommending that you do get a booster shot. And you know, this is not a new process. Every year, we get notified that we need to get a booster shot for our flu vaccine because the flu virus, you know, being a living entity, also evolves and creates variants year over year. And we need to re up our vaccine so that we are protected against the current version of the flu vaccine making the rounds. Um, Additionally, this week, and this is great news for parents uh, and and those with young children, that the FDA um, is in the final stages of approving vaccines for five to twelve year olds, which means that essentially all of the you know potential uh, um, people who could get the vaccine from the ages of five on up. Uh, would be uh, eligible and able to be vaccinated. So, you know, there's, there's talk going around of how this is going to be a boon to parents uh, to allow their children to attend in-person school. Uh, you know, and this, this is a, a, a really big set of news for that segment of the population. So, you know, to add to getting yourself vaccinated... Um, You know, I I urge that you speak with your doctor or medical professional and, you know, see about getting your children, you know, five to 12 vaccinated for uh, the COVID as well. So, you know, again, uh, a big week in COVID announcements. Uh, We're happy to hear about that. Um, I'd love to gather your thoughts on it if you have an opinion on it send it in an email to firedupradio up radio at yahoo.com and let me know what you think. Um, you know, would you get your children vaccinated? Yes or no. Uh, what do you think about, you know, having your, your children being vaccinated and being able to be fully protected while they're in, uh, in person schooling. So we'll, we'll look for emails from you guys on that. And, you know, whatever comes in, we'll bring up on the show. So, Let's turn the page a little bit and get into our, our primary topic of this show, which is the political machine and the political system. And the uh, other big, you know, among many big political news events this week um, has been a lot of talk about the Biden administration's infrastructure plan. Uh, as you're aware, as we've talked about on this show uh, the, the smaller of the two packages that have been proposed uh, has already um, passed the House and is, is sitting and waiting for approval in the Senate, which the Democrat Party can do on a party-line vote uh, without needing any Republican assistance uh, to do that through the reconciliation process. Uh, the second component, which is the larger of the two, uh, originally slated at three and a half trillion dollars uh, the Biden administration in working with within their party and with the Republicans uh, in the Senate have paired that back uh, to somewhere just around two trillion dollars uh, so they've taken about a third of it off the table and you know they are are working the final details and according to, News uh, interviews from uh, House leader Nancy Pelosi this week um, that it is it is possible and, and maybe even likely that this this new bill will come up for a vote uh, at some point this week. And, you know, uh, assuming that it will pass, will then go on to the Senate where we'll take up debate there. So, you know, the Democrats, you know, are making progress. The package isn't as expansive and as large as they initially wanted it to be. But truth of matter, and as I've said on this program, I, I think the idea of having these all in everything in the stewpot bills is, you know, a, a poor uh, tactical approach. Um, you, they should be focusing on doing this in stages uh, so that they can demonstrate to the American people that their approach is working and garner the support and, and approval they need to move forward with the next set of packages. But I'm not, in the, I'm not in Congress. I'm just the guy with the mic. So, you know, it's just my opinion. But let's talk about uh, what's likely to come out and, and what's likely to stay in the bill that the Biden administration is proposing now. So, among the things that are likely to remain in the package, uh, a national four-week paid family and medical leave plan, which has been shortened down from what was initially proposed to 12 weeks, Um, you know, so it it would include reasons such as uh, recovering from a serious illness, caring for a seriously ill family member, or caring for a new child. Um, The White House said the program will provide workers up to $4,000 a month with a minimum of two-thirds of average weekly wages replaced, rising to 80% for the lowest-wage workers. Another element that uh, is going to be in the bill is universal pre-K or pre-kindergarten schooling for three- to four-year-olds. The federal government would pay for the entirety of the program for the first three years And then some of the costs would shift to the states Um, a one-year extension of the child tax credit originally expanded under the covid relief bill the credit has resulted in parents getting direct cash payments from the irs for their kids the white house has estimated that the tax credit slashed the country's child poverty rate by 50 percent it provides a monthly child cash allowance of three hundred dollars per child under six years of age and $250 per month per child ages 6 to 17 years old for families with qualifying incomes. For those that receive Medicare uh, $800 vouchers to help cover annual dental costs will be included in the package. The original proposal would have expanded Medicare coverage to include dental care. This will be based on a voucher system so you would submit and be reimbursed uh funding for child care centers to offset the cost for families and reinforce the industry's workforce made up mostly of women and particularly of women of color the industry was hit particularly hard by the pandemic and officials believe easier access to child care will make it easier for parents to get back to work Uh, another element that will stay in will be increases to pell grants for low-income college students The Pell Grant program is the primary college financial aid program for students in need, helping more than 6.7 million students last year. The proposal would increase the current maximum of $6,495 in assistance a year by $500, so just shy of $7,000 a year. Uh, Unspecified climate change funding Uh, Will be rolled in, including tax credits for green technology, elder care provisions, including increasing home health care funding and reducing health care premiums. The plan originally called for $400 billion investment in expanding home and community-based services, but that's expected to be scaled back. Uh, A boost to Affordable Care Act subsidies for those using the federal system to buy insurance, which will make it more affordable. And uh, another is a public option for individuals who can't get Medicaid in their state. The move, which was championed by Representative Jim Clyburn, uh, Democrat of South Carolina, and Senator Raphael Warnock, Democrat of Georgia, would make it easier for more than 2 million poor people in states that rejected expanding the ACA to get coverage. So those are... are um, some of the things that have stayed into the administration's proposal. Now let's take a look at some of the things that uh, have been dropped out of it in the pared-down bill. Um, One of them is free community college. Originally, the proposal was to have included two years of free community college uh, uh, available, which would have cost $109 billion a year. Uh, an expanded Medicaid coverage that would include dental, vision, and hearing benefits, uh, an effort that had been championed by uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, who's independent of Vermont. The Clean Electricity Performance Program will also be eliminated, which would pay electric electric utility companies that switch from fossil fuels to renewable or clean energy sources and fine those that don't. Uh, the measure opposed by Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia, but Biden said Thursday he's still hopeful that it will be included. And some tax rate hikes on corporations and top income earners, which are opposed by Senator Kristen Cinema, Democrat of Arizona. The White House has looked for other ways to tax businesses and the wealthy and continues to exist, insist any deal, will include some new revenues for the government and just a side note on the the clean electricity performance program there was a report that came out in the news over the weekend that uh, cited a world health organization uh, study that showed uh, converting the the uh, top 15 percent of Coal-fired plants from coal to natural gas could reduce the uh, greenhouse gas emissions of those plants by up to 73%. Now, that uh, would mean that some 15,000 coal-fired plants um, in in the U.S. and around the world would be or could be converted to burn natural gas, and create a substantial benefit in terms of uh, lowering the carbon dioxide and and greenhouse gas outputs of these facilities uh, in in an effort to combat climate change and global warming. So we'll keep an eye on that. That just popped up on the radar on Sunday. Uh, I'll follow up and, and keep an eye and bring you more news as that comes out. So, you know, here we are. The Democrats proposed three and a half trillion dollars. It's now been paired back to, depending on which sources you listen to, between about one point eight and two trillion dollars. Uh, and at that level, uh, there is some optimism that it will, in fact, pass through the House and should arrive at the Senate. And we will wait to see what happens uh, in the Senate, uh, of course. You know, it, it will likely be subject to a filibuster there unless there is some compromise efforts worked out between the Biden administration and Senate Republicans to uh, pass that bill through and then get both packages to the president's desk for signature. You know, um, one thing that we've talked about on this show, and we, we've mentioned it a few times, and it is strategy and tactics um you know there is a a strategic approach that can be taken and then there is a tactical approach uh strategy is the formulation of the plan tactics is the implementation of that plan uh the the democrats really uh in my opinion uh really have fallen short on both their strategy and their tactics as i said you know, earlier in this segment, uh, they could have put together a package of programs uh, under this infrastructure bill that clearly focused on the hard infrastructure things that needed to get done, uh, get those started, so that the American people can see, you know, what the benefits are going to be, and then move forward through, you know, the 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 term to get the other items through. They could have approached it as a step one, step two, et cetera, et cetera. Um, rather than, than put these big, scary, huge packages together, which were almost guaranteed to come under scrutiny, criticism, and and concern from the Republican Party, uh, they chose to do it this way. Um, so, hopefully, this administration and future administrations will learn that and climb the mountain one step at a time instead of trying to take three giant leaps to do it. Uh, let's, let's take our break here. When we come back on the other side we're going to talk about some more uh, issues uh, around one of our favorite subjects here on Fire It Up and that is the subject of the efforts by the Republican Party at redistricting uh, in, in the areas that they control. You're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMSradio.com. We'll be right back after the break. Hi, folks. It's Steve from Fired Up. As you know, on this show, we spend a lot of time talking about COVID-19 and the effects it's having on our country, on our community, and on our families. I wanted to give you a couple of public service announcements that came from the University of California at San Francisco. The first is from Dr. Star Knight. Uh, who is an M.D. at uh, the University of California San Francisco and the second is from Jonathan Butler PhD also from the University of California at San Francisco. Please take a moment and listen to these two important messages and again consider carefully uh, about getting the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, This is a public service announcement from us here at Fire It Up and from your friends at wjmsradio.com.
2: I first got the vaccine, number one, as obviously to protect myself, but but honestly to protect my family. I've had direct discussions after getting the vaccine with members of my own family, and I, I think in general there was just kind of overall skepticism, especially in the Black community, but in Black and brown communities alike. Uh, there's a, there are historic health inequities. And so there are reasonable concerns from members of those communities. And that's a community that I belong to as well. And that's why I had to inform myself and look at the data myself. The data was very reassuring. And one thing for me as a Black American was seeing how diverse the patient population was in each trial and, and feeling comfortable with that as well. There is lots of misinformation in the media and it's hard to combat that and so I would go with trusted sources, medical professionals, people in your community, people in your family, ask about their experiences and get familiar.
0: When I first heard about the COVID vaccine, I was a little bit uneasy. Um, I didn't know much about it, didn't know whether or not it was safe or effective, so I did a little bit of my research. Uh, I realized that it was safe It was effective. And then the side effects were very minimal. Everyone has a choice to take the vaccine. And if you don't feel comfortable now, it's okay. One thing that is important about the vaccine is the vaccine is for us. African-Americans who have higher rates of dying from COVID-19, the vaccine can actually save our lives. Not only save your life, but save the life of your family members. And so when people have a hesitation around taking the vaccine, again, you should consider What are the benefits of me taking the vaccine versus the risk of me getting or having long-term effects of actually getting COVID? And once you consider that, once you've talked with your doctor, then make a decision of whether or not it's okay to do it now.
1: And welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMSradio.com, where radio is reimagined. And we're going to pick up where we left off. I wanted to follow on something that I ended the first segment on, where I was talking about strategy and tactics. Uh, as I said at the, you know, at the end of the last segment, um, I, I faulted the Democrats on their strategy of an all-or-nothing, a take-it-or-leave-it approach. Uh, whenever you, you make that kind of approach to, uh, to an opponent, you always have and run the risk of them saying, I won't take any of it or I'll leave it. Then what do you do? So by putting, you know, this all eggs in one basket, you know, three and a half trillion dollar uh, package in front of the Republicans. Uh, Democrats, in a sense, kind of force their hand to say, no, we don't want that. And here we are uh, going through week after week of debate and discussion back and forth. Um you know, again, we all have our own opinions. In my opinion, uh, I think a more uh, reasoned approach would be to to offer selected pieces of it as stages of an inter- infrastructure package uh, that would have been perhaps a little bit more digestible to the Republican Party uh, and to the American people as well. Uh, but the Republicans are also playing games in this. Uh, They are are playing that that old magician's tactic of getting your attention to what's going on with the left hand while the right hand is is doing what you want to do. The Republicans have adopted a uh, delay, distract, divide uh, approach in this in that they have placed these these issues that create a huge amount of. Of public uproar, a huge amount of public discussion, while in the background they're working things more kin to their their tactical goals, and by that I mean, you know, the the redistricting efforts that are going on around the country, while you know the public is is you know paying in large part attention to the battles going on on Capitol Hill, uh, Republican legislatures in the state are moving forward with redistricting plans that are you know, diluting the vote of you know, minority districts and, and other ways of disenfranchising minority voters, uh, that's going to have very long-term effects. Obviously, in terms of redistricting, this is a once-every-10-year process. So you know, whatever changes finally get adopted, uh... the country's gonna have to live with for the next ten years um, you know and a- as we've talked about on prior shows uh... these redistricting plans uh... for the most part have been flying somewhat under the radar uh... some news outlets have been bringing them out and i know we've been discussing them here uh... we've talked in past weeks we've talked about redistricting battles going on in michigan and in texas uh... in florida and and i believe in utah as well where you know the republican control legislatures are dividing up areas where um, min- minority voters make up the majority of the population and blending them with uh you know with white districts in order to create districts that are more favorable to the republican platform rather than give a fair voice to all of the residents in that given area. you know, As I said, we've talked about this uh, pretty heavily over the last three weeks. You can go to our archive at soundcloud.com or, or tune in or go through the wjms.com uh, website and check out our prior shows to hear what we've talked about with that. Um, but in the most recent one that just came out this past week, uh, and this is a story from United Press International. Uh, a federal court in Illinois has thrown out redistricting plans for the state as unconstitutional for violating the one person, one vote principle. So, uh, again, to, to kind of give some background here, um, you know, the, the census and the redistricting efforts are codified in the Constitution of the United States. That is, every 10 years, every resident, uh, every person living in the United States is counted. And the results of those counts are used to determine how many uh, constituents each congressional representative will have and essentially how the control of the U.S. um, House of Representatives is divided up. So, every 10 years, we have these efforts at redistricting. And, you know, the party in power in each state uh, is the party in control of drawing district maps. And, you know, typically, and it doesn't matter whether it's a Democratic state or a Republican state, the tendency is that they tend to draw districts that favor their own party. Um, you know, there, there's been discussion about. Establishing bipartisan commissions. And in fact, those do exist in several states where the district lines are being drawn just based on the number of constituents living in a given area that would allow for each representative to have an equal number of constituents, regardless of their political party. Um, And as I said, that's happening in, in several states, but the overwhelming majority of states are actually Divided up along party lines, and since Republicans control the majority of state houses in the states uh, in the U.S., obviously the resulting districts end up uh, over overrepresenting the power of Republicans versus Democrats, uh, where Democrats may actually physically outnumber Republicans. A good example of this, uh, as we've talked about, is what's going on with redistricting in Texas where because of population shifts over the last 10 years, um, there are several districts which, you know, according to the old map, would be predominantly minority-controlled districts and under the new maps would be diluted or watered down to make them uh, Republican districts. So you know, as I said, we've talked about this uh, more times than I can count. It's part of the games that are played, and part of the games we need to be aware of, so that we can weigh in and make our voices heard on how our states are divided up. But getting back to Illinois, this ruling uh, is in response to two lawsuits, one of which was filed by the Democratic Mexican American Legal Defense and Education Fund, and the other filed by the Republican Party of Illinois. Uh, the federal court has consolidated these two cases together as both plaintiffs allege the June redistricting plan violated their right to equal protection under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. So the, the June redistricting plan uh, was a result of a uh, map that was drawn based on data that came from the American Community Survey uh, and which was approved by the Democrat-controlled General Assembly in May, prior to the release of the 2020 U.S. Census, uh, the census was delayed due to the you know the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, uh, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker signed the redistricting plan into law on June 4th. Uh, the suit was brought and brought before a three-judge panel uh, at the the federal district level, and. They ruled uh, last Wednesday that the plan created for both House and Senate districts were either overpopulated or underpopulated, which would dilute the voting power of their constituents in violation of the aforementioned constitutional uh, 14th Amendment. Uh, The defendants had argued that they had faced a constitutional mandate to enact the plan before June 30th as their reason for not waiting for release of the census data. However, the judges rejected this argument saying there's no mandate saying the plans had to be completed by that date. The mandate, the the ruling of the law states that if they were not completed by that date a redistricting commission would take over. Now, if we step out of the article for a second here, um, the idea that the redistricting commission Perhaps would have drawn districts that were either more evenly balanced between the two parties or based on the, uh, the population distributions, the demographics would have favored Democrats over the Republicans. And obviously, uh, you know, with all of the, the, the headaches and arguments that would have ensued. The judges said the Democrats didn't wait for the census data to be released because of their desire to avoid handing over the redrawing of maps to a bipartisan commission, as I was just stating. Political, and this is a quote political considerations are not unconstitutional, and courts are reluctant to wade into, much less to reverse, partisan maps, including those that amount to political gerrymanders, the court said. More quote, While there is nothing legally wrong with this approach, it is not a proper rationale for violating constitutionally required mandates, including the drawing of districts of approximately equal population. In other words, the judges said, the General Assembly may not dilute a large percentage of voters to advance preferred political outcome. The three-judge panel has uh, set a deadline of November 8th to submit proposed revisions to the map with the state to offer its responses and objections 10 days later. Uh, there's another hearing scheduled for November 5th. Um, you know, And according to Ernest Herrera, uh, Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund staff attorney, uh, quote, the court has affirmed what we have argued since Illinois began the redistricting process, and that is proceeding with redistricting using estimates of population rather than census enumeration data would result in unconstitutional maps. Uh, the Republican House leader, Jim Durkin, and Republican Senate leader, Dan McConchie, called a ruling in a statement issued uh, to the State Journal Register a victory for Illinois citizens, advocacy groups, and communities of interest. Uh, and quote, during this process, the Republican caucuses consistently demanded transparency and fairness in mapmaking, which were rejected by Democrats and Governor Pritzker. The court's ruling validates all the concerns that were raised during the Democrats' unconstitutional attempts to gerrymander Illinois, and we step out of the article here. To point out the fact that in this particular case, in this particular state, the game's being played by the Democrats, not by the Republicans. Holding up the argument, I state many, many times that both sides play these games. All right. Um, Back to the article. Uh, The ruling comes days after the Legal Defense Fund with several other voting civil rights groups sued Texas over-redistricting plans on accusations that they are unconstitutional and strip Latinos of their voting power. So, you know, this this article falls in line with what we've been talking about on this show. Number one, that, you know, it, it is not just, you know, the Republicans uh, or just the Democrats that play these type of political games. Uh, number two, that, we need to pay attention to the strategy at play and the tactics at play as we assess the performance of our elected officials of whichever political party we're talking about. And number three, that you know, we need to hold our elected officials accountable for the actions they take, particularly when those actions run counter to what general public opinion is, is calling for. As we've seen in in this scenario, in in terms of district representation, as well as as many others uh, that we've talked about here on this show and and other media sources have brought out uh, over over the years. So, you know, as always, you know, our call to action is to stay engaged, to stay informed, uh, to stay educated and to stay in communication with our elected officials so that they know where we stand on you know these kinds of matters. So if you're you know, living in Illinois, you need to pay particular attention to how these maps are being drawn, who's drawing them, and what the end result will be, uh, and make sure that you let your voice be heard on the matter you know, to your state legislatures and to your governor's office so that they're aware that if they're not following the will of the people, that there are changes that the people can make and that we will make. So, you know, all in all, as always, we say our, our call to action consistently is stay educated, stay engaged, stay informed, and, you know, let them know what you want them to do. So, as I said, we're keeping an eye on redistricting efforts around the country and as these plans come to light, as states announce uh, their preliminary plans, uh, we will do our best to assess them and, and find out the details and, and look at the pros and cons and bring that information to you. Um, however, that doesn't preclude you from doing your diligence and expanding the circle of information that you get, as we always call for here. Don't just listen to one side or, you know, the other uh, if you're in the mainstream media, you know, listen across the spectrum. If you're listening in social media, you know, listen to arguments on on both sides. Listen to the, the postings from both sides of the issue. The truth lies in the middle, good people. And, you know, it, it's our job uh, to find it and assess it for our value. Uh, no one is going to do that for us. Um, so, you know, again, the call out is, you know, what do you think of what's going on? We've, we've talked about several states redistricting efforts over the past few weeks, and I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on how, you know, the states in general and your state in particular. Uh, go to your state websites and look up the redistricting map and see how your districts are drawn. See who uh, represents you and, and see who else they represent. You know, is is your district uh, a majority of one party over another? Is it a majority uh, minority district? Is it a majority white district? Look at the demographics and see how that plays into how your state legislature and your federal elected officials uh, respond to the needs you have in your state. Because that's the way it works. Uh, send any questions you have or comments you have to Fired Up Radio at Yahoo.com. Uh, I I really would like to hear what you have to say. Uh, so a couple of other things that are, are tripping around the news. You know, we've, we've talked about COVID booster shots. We've talked about redistricting. We've talked about you know, uh, a lot of stuff this show. But there's, there's always still more. So let, let's, let's take a look at a few quick takes that we can go through with the, the minutes we have remaining here in the show. Let's take a look at the filibuster. And again, it's another subject that we've touched on frequently here on this show. Uh, For those that that don't know or or aren't fully understanding, the filibuster in the Senate is a rule as part of the Senate rules package. Number one, please keep in mind, it is not a federal law. It is just a rule of the body of the Senate uh, that... Uh, can require a 60-vote threshold for certain uh, legislation in order for that legislation to pass. Uh, in the past, it was 60 votes needed to approve uh, federal judges and Supreme Court justices, uh, which the Republicans uh, eliminated from the filibuster rule uh, and in, in order to allow them and give them the freedom to, you know, appoint the three justices they appointed in the Trump administration uh, by simple uh, majority vote, a 51-vote majority. Um, other elements that require a filibuster include uh, budget spending elements, such as the, uh, the infrastructure packages currently under consideration. So the argument has been that, um, you know, the, the Democrats... Should move forward with efforts to either eliminate the filibuster in its entirety, or to enact additional exceptions, uh, as with you know federal judicial appointments, in the filibuster for you know the specific types of financial needs, and in in both cases um, there have been you know people on both sides of the aisle in favor. And opposed. And the arguments are going back and forth as to whether or not the filibuster should be eliminated in its entirety or if there should be exceptions carved out for specific elements of legislation that need to be passed that could then be passed on a simple 51 vote majority. Um, the, the arguments uh, against, and these have been expressed by both parties over the years when they were on either side of the issue is that if they eliminate the filibuster now, it is something that would come back and haunt uh, the minority party or the majority party uh, when the roles reversed, you know, either through a midterm election or through a national election. Um, you know, and you know, there may be some validity to that argument that you know, if, if we get rid of the filibuster now because it benefits us, We're going to be crying the blues in the future when the other side uh, uses it against us and it's our own fault because we voted to get rid of it. To me, again, as we talk about, you know, strategy and tactics and choices, um, to me, that's a weak argument. Uh, Right now, with, you know, the infrastructure bill, and let's use this as the example, the things, the hard infrastructure things that are in this package of bills, are things that our country desperately needs. We desperately need to have our roads and bridges uh, fixed and rebuilt or replaced. We desperately need to have our rail systems upgraded to standards at least as equal to other major developed countries in the world. Uh, The idea of expanding broadband internet service to all parts of the country is one that has been long talked about and long overdue. And you know, and, and so forth. There are many things in the infrastructure, the hard infrastructure package, that are absolute necessities of things that we need to get done in this country. Um, you know, and the the idea that we saddle these vital elements with things that are, while important, don't get me wrong, but you know, aren't critical infrastructure things. Um, these are things that you know could be brought forward as separate packages in my opinion uh as the the proof of how well the hard infrastructure improvements are are you know impacting the economy and you know the the all of the assessments all of the political discussions Talk about how these infrastructure improvements will generate millions of jobs, will stimulate the U.S. economy, which will go in effect to generate more revenue into the federal government to pay for these improvements down the road, lessening the impact that taxes from your and my paycheck uh, will, will need to be uh, garnished in order to, to achieve this. Um, you know, again... Strategically, we need to get these uh, items done. Tactically, we need to approach it from a, a staged approach. You know, let let's deal with these critical infrastructure, hard infrastructure items first, and then deal with the soft infrastructure items. You know, as the economy responds and we are better able to afford them, thus lessening. The amount of debt that we create and and the the burdens that are that are applied to the working and middle class of this country and so forth. Um, you know, it is, uh, you know, it is it is something that when you look at it from the outside looking in, you kind of have to ask yourself, you know, why didn't they think of this element of it? Or if they did think of it, why wasn't it pushed harder? So. You know, it's it's something, again, we have to be engaged with our elected officials. That is clearly a rule that we need to live by in this country as the voters, as the electorate, Uh, whether you're a Democrat, whether you're Republican, whether you're independent. uh, We need to uh, address these issues and stay informed and educated and engaged with them. Um, Another another point to consider. And keep in mind that, you know, in this show, I, I try not to speak about political figures, politicians, more, than, more so that I prefer to speak about the political system. But, you know, I, I look at the upcoming midterm elections, and I look at the uh, national elections, you know, three years out, and I look and listen to all of the discussions going on uh, with regard to You know, the the influence of the prior president, the former president and his his approach to things to how politics is going to go forward in the coming election cycles. And I say this, it is entirely possible for this country to address the issues raised raised by a a Trumpian approach to things without having to engage with the person. Uh, we can have Trumpism without having its, its namesake, without having Donald Trump. Um, you know, and, and I think more and more that we need to be communicating to our elected officials that same approach. Look, there are things that the 45th president did from a policy standpoint and regulation standpoint Many things he he did, um, personally, I don't approve of. Many things, uh, some things that he did were hurtful to the the middle class and working class families in this country. But there were other things that he did that actually benefited all Americans and he should receive credit for them. Of course, the flagship item on that list is his vaccine uh, mandate program, Operation Warp Speed. Uh, for which he rightly deserves the credit for getting the vaccines out into the marketplace in the, the short amount of time that he did so. We'll give him credit for that. OK, but that doesn't mean that we can't have uh, things akin and in line with uh, his way of thinking or, or his uh, segment of the party uh, lines of thinking uh, that are beneficial without the the bad things the negative things that the individual brought in along with it so just something to think about um, you know there there's a silver lining to every dark cloud and you know if if we are going to improve we've got to be more of a nation of glass half full than glass half empty people well that's going to do it for this week uh, thank you so much as always for listening Uh, Please send your thoughts and comments to the radio station email, to the show email at firedupradio at yahoo.com. I look forward to your comments. Please stay safe, get vaccinated, and I will speak to you all again in seven days.